We'll be talking about the impact of gun violence in this podcast. If this is a difficult topic for you, please take care when listening. I went to fourth period and it was pretty normal. We just had an assignment for an essay that was due that night. So I was writing my essay and all of a sudden I heard loud banging. It was just one bang. And then suddenly after it was multiple bangs. In my mind the entire time, I was very confused and I wasn't having a normal reaction as other people were. So I was kind of like making jokes in my head and giving my friend looks. And, you know, I was thinking to myself, oh, this is just a drill. My classmates were very shocked and crying, being quiet. After a few of, I would say the first round of shots, there was walking and then a jiggle on my doorknob. And in my mind, I was like, oh, it's an administrator. That's their heels. They're walking to the door. They're checking to see if it's locked. Luckily, the door was locked. We would find out later was the perpetrator. He was the one who jiggled on our doorknob and he walked away. And all of a sudden it was like, people screaming next to our classrooms and saying, help us, help me. We heard a lot of screaming and that's when I was getting very concerned. I just distinctly remember looking at one of my classmates. She looked at me straight in the eye and she just started like bawling. Something is absolutely wrong. This is not okay. And then the police came to our door and they said, open up, it's the police banging on our door. So the glass smashed and they opened the door. We put our hands up and as we were walking out, it was a very close walk to the door to exit. And as we were going out, the police officer was saying, keep to the left, keep to the left, look to the left. And then I looked to the right. There was two bodies on the ground in a pile of blood, which was very upsetting and shocking. Then they told us to, you know, run out the building. My name is Bianca Romano. I go to Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. My name is Amy Over. And this is Confronting Columbine. This episode is brought to you in part by June's Journey. Picture it. The glamour of the Roaring Twenties, wrapped in a mystery that only you can solve. Dive into June Parker's captivating quest to uncover scandalous family secrets. With your keen eye for detail, find hidden clues and solve mind-boggling puzzles. It's all about observation, intrigue, and drama. But beware, each clue leads deeper into a thrilling storyline filled with danger and romance. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Your adventure awaits. Welcome back to Confronting Columbine. I'm Nancy Glass with Amy Over, survivor of the 1999 Columbine Massacre. Today, Amy, you talked to somebody who experienced this terrible crime much more recently. Nancy, I was not prepared for this one. You know, every time there's a school shooting, for people like me, it's really triggering and debilitating sometimes. I try not to watch the coverage. 
Sandy Hook, Virginia Tech. I go down a rabbit hole every time. But this one, Parkland hit really close to home. Well, of course, that makes sense. It's a high school in a way like Columbine. And a former student committed this mass murder. He had been planning it. There are lots of parallels. Right, and you know there are so many lessons that we learned from Columbine. A.J. D'Andrea told us, you know, how law enforcement really deals with active shooter drills now. But Parkland, 20 years after Columbine, I met a teacher, Kim Krawcheck, who was right in the middle of the shooting, and she does not hold back. I'm Kim Krawcheck. I'm a teacher at Stoneman Douglas. I teach math. Let's see, I've been a teacher for, this is my 16th year in the public school system. And most of those years have been with Broward County Schools. The year of the shooting, I was teaching geometry and geometry honors. Kim, would you mind telling me about that day, February 14th, 2018, at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School? So it starts in the morning with a meeting. This is not general knowledge. We're sitting in a meeting and they're literally telling us about, you know, you guys are writing too many passes. We have kids in the hallway. Make sure that you're doing, you know, keep the kids in the classroom. Teach what you're teaching. Mm -hmm. They tell us one of the security guards is going to be on the second floor in the freshman building because we can only let a couple kids in at a time because the first floor bathrooms are closed because of drug use. Yeah. The third floor bathrooms are closed because of vandalism. So there's only one set of men's room and one set of ladies' room in the entire freshman building for the students to use. The freshman building was also known as Building 12. It was the location where all 17 of the Stoneman Douglas murders would take place. So it's a building that's three floors. Looks like a big rectangle. The building itself has a long face to the north and a long face to the south. And then the two sides, there's a west entrance and an east entrance. On the first floor, when that kid comes in, there's stairwells going up. So he puts the gun together in the stairwell, comes back down. And on the first floor, he, he shoots Gina Montalto, Luke Hoyer, Martin Duque. He fires into Dara Haas's room. He kills Alex Schachter. Elena Petty, both of those were, were my students, but in a different period. He kills Chris Hickson, Aaron Feiss. On the first floor, he also murders Carmen Shuntrup, Nicholas Dwart, Helena Ramsey. How quickly did you know what was happening? The first gunshot. I had a young lady leave my room to go use the restroom. Right? So I, t I, I go to hand her the pass because we're getting ready to go over a quiz because we have a test in a couple of days and I want to give them the answers to the quiz so they can study with it. So I say, here's a pass. You got to go down to the second floor because third floor is closed. But as soon as you're done, come right back because I want you to be able to have time to write the answers and it's getting close to the end of class. She leaves and enters the stairwell and I hear pop, pop, pop. I hear three gunshots. I've been in a simulation. Somebody said, I think I hear gunshots. And I said, you know what? I don't, I don't know what it is, but I need you guys up. And then I could hear the gunshots, but a lot, but that sounded differently because along with the gunshots, there was glass breaking this time. 
So Leah, the little girl that I let out, runs up the stairs and is knocking on the door. Well, once an incident begins, you're not supposed to open your door for any reason, right? Mm -hmm. There was no way. There was no way I was leaving that kid in the hallway. Yeah. So I opened the door. I said, um, I don't know what this is. She said, can I come in? I said, are you the bad guy? Cause I did, like I didn't, like I were supposed to ask her, like I knew she wasn't the bad guy, but like for some reason it was not processing the right way. And she said, no. And I said, come in. And I said, guys, get up and get in the corner. Hello, we're at Stoney Douglas High School and I think there's a shooter. He continues on to the second floor and he fires into a couple of classrooms that were, thank God, empty. The second floor had heard what was going on. While he was on the first floor, the fire alarm goes off from the exhaust from the gun because he was firing so rapidly. And they start down the stairwells. Now, I didn't leave. Boy, oh boy, I knew exactly what was going on downstairs. I mean, I hate to say it that way, but I, but I definitely did. Everybody opens their doors. Not every classroom empties out. A couple of teachers were like, what, what is going on? Because we had a, a fire drill earlier that day. So we were like, wait a minute. Yeah, why are we having a second fire drill? But people start out, you know, it's it's 2.20 on Valentine's Day. You remember being a teenager, that fire alarm goes off and you think you're getting out early, man. Those kids hit that door as fast as could be. So he hears this and comes running up my side. I would have been on the east side entrance. So he comes running up that east side entrance and starts firing down the hallway from east to west. I was across the hall from Scott Beagle. Okay. Scott Beagle taught geometry across the hall from Kim. Students on the third floor were confused when the fire alarm went off and some went into the hallway thinking they should follow fire drill protocol. Then, once hearing gunfire, they realized what was happening. Scott risked his life when he went into the hallway to hold the door open for them. He was shot and killed as the gunman came onto the third floor. He runs out of bullets and has to drop a clip and put one in. I mean, like literally we can hear it ping in the floor in front of us, right? Cause he's near my alcove for my door, my door well. Mm -hmm. And one of my kids even says something. He goes, I think he's reloading. I'm like, oh, don't talk, <laughs> like, don't say anything. He continues down the hallway. Scott Beagle has already been shot and killed at this point. Meadow is still alive, crawls across the hallway to try and protect a young lady. Her name is Kara Laughlin. He murders both of them, executes Joaquin, Joaquin Oliver. Jamie Guttenberg at this point has already been killed and is lying in a pool of her own blood in the stairwell. He finishes off Peter Wang. He did put extra bullets in, but the only one who didn't perish on that floor that was already wounded would have been Anthony Borges. It was mass hysteria behind my door. <laughs> were you trained for you were you've been trained in this? I've been through a simulation before. I tell him to get in the corner. You know, I end up being like a little aggressive. I said, I don't give a F if one of you gets F and pregnant. Get your 
<laughs> a in the corner. Yeah. And a couple of kids will be like, that's exactly when we knew that something was going on. That's terrifying. Yeah. Kim managed to keep all 25 students in her class safe. A student from another class, Anthony Borges, was injured, shot in the hallway, but alive. They heard him, but couldn't do anything to help. Kim and her students didn't know if the shooter was out of the building or holding him hostage. She let her students text their parents to keep things quiet. Finally, at 3.40 p.m., the police knocked on her door and asked Kim to open it. The students were escorted single file down the stairs and out of the building. They walked past the dead bodies of their fellow classmates and a teacher. The deceased were not removed until late that night and the next morning. They had to clear out my building first because they weren't sure who to triage. And then they had to bring in Broward CSI to start marking the bodies and stuff. Walk me through, how did the school district and the county respond to the students and staff after the shooting? So the Alumni Association for Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, right, puts together this whole, like, we got to help these kids. How could this possibly happen? I mean, I'm not kidding. They literally took the best care of us. But the way that they, like, could communicate with each other or keep their posts coming forward, they used hashtag MSD strong. Mm-hmm. So the county picks up on that immediately. I mean, they made us t-shirts. Everything became, we are MSD strong. It was part of our announcements. Yeah, explain the MSD strong. People are like, we were trying to help. I understand that mobilizing MSD and MSD alumni were trying to get that hashtag so that they could talk to each other. Here's my biggest problem with all of that is that hashtag, I'm really sorry. It's okay. That hashtag normalized school shooting to the, where it was like, nobody should normalize that. That's not normal. That's not normal. Running for your life, that's not normal. No kid should ever think that that, like, okay, because people would be like, well, you went through something very difficult, but boy, oh boy, you came out of it like a champ. When something really bad happens and everybody's like, wow, you're doing so great. Like, then you can't say to that person, no, I'm not. <laughs> right? Like, like what? what's the human response? Yeah. Oh, oh, thank you so much. Like, I'm, I'm really trying every day. Like, you're not allowed to fall apart. Like, you're not allowed to, yeah. to be human and, and to have, because we have a stigma in our society with mental health. Something difficult? No. Getting a 1400 on your SATs is difficult, right? Yeah. Walking over somebody you just had lunch with a couple hours ago. I just hated the fact that everybody was like, look at these Douglas kids, man. They just got it so handled. And so the kids that were falling apart, the kids that were in my classroom crying or having a hard time or needed somebody to talk to or or started using drugs like there wasn't any attention for them there like wasn't anything left administration kept leaning on us to get back to normal they put up a banner outside when i get when i get back to school the very first day there's a horse out front with msd strong spray painted on his butt 
they're like, well, you know what? No, kids are resilient. They're going to bounce back, but they're only going to bounce back if they're in their routine, if they go back to the things that they're familiar with. And I'm like, listen, their grandma didn't die in hospice, you idiots. They were in a mass shooting. Those are two different things. With everyone fighting for attention, how can your business stand out and connect with customers? Easy. Get Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay on top of mind, and see big results. Fast. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business with powerful tools like email and SMS marketing, social media posting, and even events management. Plus, you can send with confidence knowing your emails are actually reaching your customers thanks to their best-in-class 97% deliverability rate. With Constant Contact, you'll reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and communicate more effectively to sell more, raise more, and fast-track growth. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500, 500 The press really rallied around the activism and March for Our Lives. I was so proud of those kids, but I also had a sinking feeling that there was a lot of trauma that we weren't hearing as much about. Not only are their friends gone, but their safety was compromised. And the way that trauma overwrites the brain, you're gonna think differently and you're gonna process a little bit slower. When did you guys go back to school? The 28th of February. Are you serious? Yes, I am. So it was two weeks, but there was also 17 people killed, 17 funerals. Was that enough time to process what happened at your site? No. Literally, Martin Duque's funeral was that Sunday The teachers went back Monday, the kids came back Wednesday. And I feel like if we would have had some other like gatherings, you know, not one teacher was processed before you guys stuffed us back in a classroom with the kids. Some of the kids were aggressive with some of the teachers because they felt they weren't protected properly. But you're also dealing with your own personal trauma. A hundred percent. Not every kid, it sounds like, was a part of the gun reform movement either. Oh no, some of our kids hate it. The people they shoved in front of the camera were the ones that weren't really, that weren't there, that weren't in the building. 
because those were the only kids that still had their marbles in the bag at the time they, those cameras were here. Like, do you guys understand what, what I'm saying? The reason that the kids that were building kids didn't get out there and say anything was because there's, their marbles were rolling around like nobody's business. So they're really offended that nobody ever wanted to hear their side, except for being a hashtag. Nobody ever really wanted to hear the story of, you know, John Q. Public that had to walk over somebody they literally just had lunch with. How did the teachers create a sense of safety? The lessons were very, they had to be very creative because the kids weren't processing. They weren't even the right color, right? They were, they were like a little bit of a gray green when they came. You could tell. Yeah, they were traumatized. They were absolutely traumatized. So I just, you know, wanted the kids to feel safe. And I just don't feel like the, the county gave us like the tools or the, the means to make the teachers feel safe so that we could then help the kids feel safe. I can remember we get back in the classroom. There's something called a safe space. This was created, I think, after you guys. Yeah. So some of the teachers for like whatever training that they had prior, they had taped off their safe space, right? And then they say, oh, well, the reason why everything, you know, we were okay and we were, you know, he didn't shoot in our room was we were in our safe space. And one of the assistant principals literally stands up front and says, guys, we have great news for you. Uh, Home Depot has donated 10 cases of blue tape so that you guys can uh, can mark off your safe space so you feel better about like uh, better about what happened. One of the people whose rooms were shot into, she stands up and says, does it magically stop bullets? There isn't a safe space when you're talking about a campus with a gunman running around. There's no safe space. So Broward County, what did they what did they provide for you guys? I go to the employee assistant. I get a call from employee assistants. Hi, this is so-and-so. This is a well check for Kim Krofcheck. And I was like, I'm Kim Krofcheck, you know, how can I help you? He's like, oh, we're just checking in to make sure that you're okay. And I said, I'm not okay. I, I need somebody to help me. I was Scott Beagle's hallmate. He was literally across the hall from me and the first person that I saw when I was evacuated. And the guy goes, He's not on my list. Do you think that he should be the next one I call? I said, baby, only if you have a crystal ball. Because he's gone. Because I was so aggressive when I get back, they wouldn't let me in. They actually made me go sit with a social worker from Miami-Dade. And I go on a complete rant. Because the first thing that I say is 100%. 100%. This kid's second grade teacher knew that he was going to do this, and she called somebody and nobody listened. This kid didn't get any services. The killer had a long history riddled with loss, trauma, a fascination with guns, mental health interventions, and online threats of violence against others. Here's the story. The perpetrator was placed in a specialized school setting that provided social, behavioral, and emotional supports in middle school. Broward County transferred him in his junior year of high school from that specialized school to a mainstream high school, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. He was given special education services at Stoneman Douglas, but when he was 18, he signed himself out. 
he was a legal adult. In reality, he never had a chance of making it work there and was expelled for disciplinary issues like stalking and violent threats. He posted threatening messages on social media describing his desire to kill people and be a school shooter. These were reported to law enforcement. A tipster who knew he was collecting weapons called the FBI just a few weeks before the massacre and reported that she was concerned about this kid shooting up a school. The FBI failed to follow up. Law enforcement and the Broward School District have been blamed for the multiple failings. He's going to come and he's going to strike out because he just, that's, that's his solution. Mm-hmm. That's what he thinks he has to do, right? And the guy's like, well, you know, unfortunately, these are some of the things that happen in the public school system. Like, everything was just so normal for everybody. Like, I just didn't understand why they were like, oh. They just wanted to brush it, like, just business as usual. Let's move forward. We actually had a Stoneman Douglas, uh, like, investigation out of the state, right? And the guy goes, Kim, you work for the sixth biggest school district in the United States. I mean... What did you think was going to happen? Don't tell me that because my school district is big. Of course, there was going to be a mass shooting. What kind of logic is that? They're writing this commission report about all these things that went wrong. And and one of their things that they talk about is like, well, there's just too many people in Broward County. Oh, come on. How can you continue to teach there? The kids. I sleep under a blanket with every single one of those kids' name on it. I'm not taking my eyes off of those kids at all. When the last kid that's on my blanket walks off that stage, as God is my witness, I'm not even sending you notice. I'm, you're going to have to look for me because I'm gone. But you're staying with all your kiddos until June. Until June. Oh, that made me emotional. That's, that's a... Uh... No way. No way would I, would I trust that county with those kids. Uh-uh. Do a lot of your students, you know, you've watched them grow the past three years. Do they come in and talk to you? All the time. We do everything together. We process the shooting all the time. Like, you know, do do you feel different, especially with COVID? Some of them feel a lot better now that they're not on campus because they don't have to walk past the, you know, because our building is still intact. It just, it it has all these chains on it, right? Because it's a crime scene. The doors are chained, but it's still there. It, it has to stay there until that kid goes to trial. It's kept a certain temperature. It is 55 degrees. It's never been cleaned. All of our stuff is still in there. So you've never been back into the freshman building? No, nobody can. Kim, that disturbs me on so many levels. Like I said, 21 years ago, I got to pick up my belongings that summer I got to walk through there were bullet holes it was a big part of my healing to be able to walk into my school again because my last day at Columbine was the day of the shooting because I was a senior that was my last memory Brandon Abzug was a senior at Parkland he reached out to the Columbine community for guidance I asked if anyone knew any people from Columbine actually to see if like we could get some sort of like a pen pal program. We got a list of a lot of people from your school. That's really the only thing. And that's because I personally reached out, not because of anyone did anything for me. And he wanted to go back to school to Stoneman Douglas 
and reconnect or retrace the steps. And it's something we always advise as a part of someone's healing process. I wrote that in an email to the principal, but it was just, they weren't very open to helping us. It's not even just for me, it's for everybody else who I think it could help. I haven't been in the schools since I graduated. I actually tried to visit with three of my friends, but they weren't having it. People from Columbine, people from Sandy Hook tried to get in touch with the teachers at Stoneman Douglas, and I will be dipped if the county said we're fine. We were never contacted. No one ever told us that other schools that had been through this were trying so hard to get in touch with us. Because they knew, they were like, we know what you're about to go through. If it wasn't for individual teachers finding their way through to get in touch with some of the teachers, you know, independently, we would have never been set up with it. I've had a ton of therapy, believe me, I've had EMDR, but there's nothing like talking to somebody who went through the same thing or a similar thing that you did. And it's just like, is it okay to feel this way? Is it okay that I sit my back? I I can't sit my back to a window at all. You know, I have weird, quirky little things that as a survivor. I was very affected by the images of Congress. Still, anyone hiding under a table from a a violent human with a gun is, it, it makes me near hysterical. Yeah. Check for exits. Yeah, like... Right? Isn't that the first thing? First thing you do, check for exits. Check for exits. And I bet all your students do. And just to validate those feelings and validate that, yes, you're going to have nightmares. And yes, it's okay to have nightmares or outbursts. They needed to hear that. They trusted the adults to keep them safe on a campus that day, and we didn't. They trusted us to provide them with a, a secure learning environment, and we didn't. They trusted us to bring them back and be able to take care of them and preserve their grades and preserve their learning and preserve their social, emotional health, and we didn't. Like, these freshmen have been through a lot. They lost the most members of their class. They had the most wounded. Mm -hmm. I write those kids a letter for Christmas every single year, and they get a little gift. And we actually have, like... Some of us have matching tattoos with the room number on it. 1257. Kim, you're awesome. You are so awesome. These kids are so lucky to have you. And, you know, these kids, they they need you. And they're all graduating and they're doing okay. I got a couple that are using, right? Like, I mean, what are you going to do? And I think out of any typical high school model, there would be like some, you know, but we talk about it. I'll tell you what, they can tell me. I just am so blessed that I got to meet you today. You're awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I really do appreciate this. Thank you so much. Wow. You really have to admire her. Um, So you wanted to get more insight on school shooters, Amy. I did really want to talk with somebody who had studied this, and we found one of the most prolific experts in the country. Dr. Peter Langman, and just the data and studies he's accumulated. It's really eye-opening and a little bit scary. If you're like me and can still recognize Mr. Brightside from the first note, and then can't resist screaming it at the top of your lungs, you're a millennial. And if you're a millennial... It's time to add Clarins Multi-Active Cream to your daily routine. 
rooted in nature and innovated with science. Clarence has a long legacy of creating industry-first, plant-forward products. Using a skin charger complex made of 2% niacinamide and Sea Holly Bioextract, Clarence Multi-Active Cream has been clinically proven to target the first visible signs of aging by smoothing lines and wrinkles, refining pores, evening tone and texture, and strengthening the skin's moisture barrier. While Multi-Active Cream can bring back the golden age of boy bands, it can de-stress your skin. Clarence Multi-Active Cream is available online now. Go to clarins.com slash truecrime and get multi-active day and night cream for 10% off, a free welcome gift, plus free shipping on your first order. That's C-L-A-R-I-N-S dot com slash truecrime with promo code truecrime. Clarins.com slash truecrime with promo code truecrime. I'm Dr. Peter Langman. I'm a psychologist in Pennsylvania. My background with this issue of school safety began just 10 days after the attack at Columbine. I was doing my doctoral internship at a local psychiatric hospital for children and adolescents. And on April 30th, just 10 days after the attack, we had a 16-year-old boy admitted to our hospital because he was seen as a what they call a Columbine-type risk. Oh my God, really? Yes, he had a hit list of people he apparently wanted to kill and had been engaging in some disturbing behavior. People saw that and they got him to our hospital. And not long after that, there was another one, another potential school shooter admitted to our hospital. And after that, another one. And I ended up working there for over 12 years and saw a pretty steady trickle of these cases. You identify mass shooters into three different categories. Can you briefly explain those three categories? The first category is what I call the psychopathic school shooter. And for me, that involves several traits. Extreme narcissism. Narcissism to the point that they don't really care about other people, which means there's no empathy, no real human connection for others. And if they don't care about others, then there's no guilt or remorse if they do anything to hurt other people. They may even be sadistic and actually go out of their way to hurt and eventually kill people because that's a thrill for them. They get a sadistic kick out of doing that. They may be very deceptive and manipulative, very good at lying, conning people, and just kind of callous and you know cold-blooded. And the second? The second type is what I call the psychotic school shooter. Fundamentally, it means someone's not fully in touch with reality. So they may have hallucinations, hearing voices talking to them. You can also have visual hallucinations or hallucinations through any of the five senses, but most commonly they're auditory, hearing things. Or they may have delusions, false beliefs, paranoid beliefs, thinking they're in danger, there's people out to get them, or maybe delusions of grandeur, believing that there's some exalted being, or maybe just other kinds of delusion. And that's where the issue of mental illness really comes in. These perpetrators may be schizophrenic or have another psychotic disorder. Got it. Then the third type is what I call the traumatized school shooter. Typically speaking, the psychopathic and psychotic shooters tend to come from more or less intact, stable homes, whereas traumatized shooters are kids from chronically and severely violent and dysfunctional families with one or both parents either alcoholic or drug addicted, one or both parents with a criminal history, 
The kids grow up with physical and psychological abuse. They may have sexual abuse either in their families, in the community, or maybe in a foster home they end up in. So it's a lifetime of victimization. I read both of our perpetrators of the Columbine massacre. I read their journals. How would you classify our perpetrators in the Columbine shooting? The older of the two, the 18-year-old, I put in the psychopathic category. If you read his journal, there's clearly sadistic content. There's a lot of very narcissistic content, striving to have like a godlike experience, looking down on everybody else as inferior to him. No empathy, wanting to just kill people that he thought did not deserve to live. Mm -hmm. He also took a lot of pride in his ability to con people, to lie effectively, deceive everybody around him. And that's also a psychopathic trait. On April 12, 1998, he wrote, I feel like God and I wish I was, having everyone being officially lower than me. I already know that I am higher than most anyone in the fucking world in terms of universal intelligence. The other perpetrator was harder to pin down, but then when the journals were released about seven years after the attack, I really studied his journal and I ended up putting him in the psychotic category. Why? In his journal, there's a lot of strange thoughts, meandering thoughts, a little incoherent, a little paranoid. You know, one of the first things that caught my attention was he made a comment, you know, when I'm in my human form, as if he's not always in his human form. You see that issue, kind of wondering who he is, not being human, being something other than human, above being human maybe. There's some very odd, disjointed thoughts. Here's what he wrote. It's interesting when I'm in my human form knowing I'm going to die. Everything has a touch of triviality to it, like how none of this calculus shit matters. The way it shouldn't. The truth. In 26.4 hours, I'll be dead and in happiness. It seemed like he struggled with depression. Right, and fascinating difference between the two journals. The psychopathic shooter's journal was largely homicidal with very little suicidal content. The other shooter's journal was largely suicidal with very little homicidal content. The two perpetrators at Columbine, they had just gotten in trouble a couple weeks prior or months prior to the massacre and they were on uh, probation. And they both, I felt like they kind of pulled the wool over their psychologist's eyes. On January 30th, 1998, the two perpetrators were caught breaking into a van, stealing electronic equipment. They were arrested and charged with a felony. With direction from their parents, both perpetrators applied for a diversion program that would require community service, counseling, and rigorous oversight. If they were accepted and completed the program, the crime would be expunged from their records. A counselor evaluated each of them and recommended they be accepted to the juvenile diversion program. A Jefferson County magistrate approved the plan. Harris did exceptionally well, feigning contrition, attending all of the required meetings and writing the victim an abject apology. Klebold slogged through less enthusiastically. Ultimately, 
both of them were released from the program early with generous praise from their case manager. After the murders, the magistrate was incredulous. What's mind-boggling, he said, is the amount of deception. Those psychologist notes have never been released, so we don't know what went on in those sessions, but I wouldn't be surprised if uh, the perpetrator just lied his way through. Again, he took pride in his ability to con people. If you read the probation officer's notes, because we do have those, yep. he writes, you know, bright young man, great future ahead of him. The prognosis is good. He's going to do great in life. But the perpetrator was very good at pulling the wall over the eyes of everyone around him. Oh, my God. And that was his probation officer? And he wrote that in February 1999, not long before the attack. And the attack had been underway in terms of planning and preparation since the previous spring. On November 1st, 1998, he wrote, I lie a lot, almost constant, and to everybody, just to keep my own ass out of the water. And by the way, side note, I don't think I'm doing this for attention, as some people may think. Let's see, what are some of the big lies I've told? Yeah, I stopped smoking. For doing it, not for getting caught. No, I haven't been making more bombs. No, I wouldn't do that. And of course, countless other ones. Why don't you think people report when they hear or know something concerning? That's a great question, and I think there's all kinds of reasons. One is, if it's your buddy, somebody you like, you're close to, it's hard to believe that your buddy is going to become a mass murderer. It's just hard to take it seriously. Keep in mind, sometimes the perpetrators are really young. We've had 11, 12, 13-year-old kids commit school shootings. That is so young, Dr. Langman. Yes, probably everyone's reaction is he's just all talk. He would never do it. He's too young. He's too small. How do you take that seriously? You don't want to get him mad. You don't want to get him suspended or expelled. And you don't believe he's going to do it anyway, so why bring it up? Why do you think our society is so quick to have the answers to why? I feel like everyone just wants a reason. Oh, well, it was the bullying. I think the attraction of simple explanations is if there's a simple explanation, maybe there's a simple solution. It reduces something that's very frightening, terrifying, and gives us a simple solution to it. If it's bullying, we know what to do. Let's stop bullying. If it's video games, maybe stop having kids play certain video games. I played sports and all my friends were athletes. There was bullying in every high school and Columbine was no different. My high school experience wasn't the same as like one of my best friends. She was bullied by a group of boys pretty bad in high school. And she told me how she felt going to Columbine. If you weren't a strong male athlete, you were slightly or a lot in danger of, of not fitting into that. You, you steered clear, you stayed out of their way. It was a cliche high school experience. And I think people whitewash that a lot. They delude their memories, they're delusional about what Columbine was because that's, that's what we need to do to move on or that's what we need to do to feel good about ourselves in contrast with what happened. Right, we need to hold on to what was bright and shiny and the goodness in all of us compared to this very dark evil. But the truth was it was like festering with with behaviors every single day. I had a good experience, but you know, our experiences are different. But do you think bullying is the cause of 
mass shootings? My simple answer would be no. That you can't just blame it on bullying. That doesn't mean no school shooter has ever been bullied, but it's a more complex phenomenon than that. And even at Columbine, again, it doesn't mean that the perpetrators were never teased. But since when does teasing lead to a desire to commit the worst act of mass murder in United States history, which was their stated goal? And what often gets lost is the fact that the two perpetrators also harassed and threatened and intimidated kids. Harassment went both ways. They were not just innocent victims. What was done to them by many accounts was uh, not particularly bad. And what they did to some other kids was pretty severe. I just feel like I was an athlete and I hung around some of the guys that beat up some of the trench coat mafia one time. I just feel bad, like guilty. I've been holding on to this for almost 22 years. I was on a hit list. I just saw the list for the first time after all these years, and I'm still reeling from it. This is why, you know, it's called confronting Columbine. I'm trying to figure out what I did or what I didn't do. Was I complicit? Did I have a hand in causing this? I have studied the thousands of pages that were released by Jefferson County Sheriff's Office. They may have been giving out more than they got in terms of peer harassment. Same with the trench coat mafia. It's not just a case of the big bad athletes picking on the little outcast trench coat mafia. A bunch of these kids were 6'2", 6'3", 6'4", 6'5". Some of these were big kids. Some of them carried weapons from what I've read. Some of the trench coat mafia were, you know, aggressive kids. So there was plenty of dynamics going on in the school, but that doesn't necessarily explain, as I said, the perpetrator's desire to commit the worst mass murder incident in United States history. Again, if you read their journals, these were disturbed young men. If you read the older one's journal, as I said, he articulates, this is not anyone's fault. It's not the school's fault. It's mm -hmm. not my parents. I'm doing this. This is what I want to do with my life. He made that very clear. If you read his journal, you also see passages of just his sadistic de delight where he's fantasizing about taking a human body and ripping it to shreds. It's very graphic and he's loving it. The fact that he was teased in gym class does not explain the fact that he had a callous, sadistic personality. Mm -hmm. And as he articulated it himself, this is what I want to do with my life. That was his life purpose, to kill a lot of people. February 2nd, 1998. I didn't want to be a jock. I hated the happiness that they have, and I will have something infinitely better. I'm raising four kids right now, <laughs> uh, and three of them are teenagers. What do I need to look for? They need to know that if they hear friends or anyone at school talking about um, bringing a gun to school, having a hit list, idolizing Columbine killers or any other killers, that's something that should be reported to the adults. That's not something to keep secret because lives are on the line potentially. Our kids today really need to be educated about reporting safety concerns 
If their school or the state has an anonymous tip line, use it. Are we competing against the no snitching messages kids receive? This is not snitching. This is reporting a safety concern. You snitch to get your brother or sister in trouble when they're eating cookies and they're not supposed to. That's snitching. Yeah. Reporting a safety concern to save people's lives has nothing to do with being a snitch or a tattletale. We have Eric's own writings where he said he loved school. And at one point he wrote, you know, don't blame my parents. Don't blame anybody. Don't blame the school. The administration's doing a fine job. On June 13, 1998, he wrote, I choose to kill that one person, so get over it. It's my fault. Not my parents, not my brothers, not my friends, not my favorite bands, not computer games, not the media. It is mine. So if Eric can put into writing, don't blame the school, then we have to wonder what else was going on. Is there one characteristic that you can identify? You know, it's like a red flag. We could come close and say maybe they're all full of rage. Why they're full of rage may be vastly different from one perpetrator to the next. But obviously, there's a lot of rage. There's some impairment in their empathy. So you may see that callousness or sadistic attitude. The idea that people deserve to die. You see a lot of fame-seeking, but also power-seeking. A lot of the perpetrators across all three types often feel powerless, inadequate. I think a lot of the perpetrators are struggling with their masculinity. And their solution to feel like they're an alpha male is to get a gun and kill people. Mm -hmm. That's the ultimate sense of power, the power of life and death. And that then plays into the desire for fame, making a name for yourself, going down in history. I think a lot of attacks, not just school shootings, but other mass attacks, involve these dynamics of trying to enhance the sense of self, to become the ultimate male, to have the ultimate power, become famous. One of the biggest issues with Columbine is the copycat killings. I read about your work, and one that stood out to me was Alvaro Castillo. This is a, a young man who was obsessed with Columbine. In fact, he tried to kill himself on the seventh anniversary of Columbine in 2006. His father intervened, saved his life, and the young man, who was very psychotic, thought that that meant God had a plan for him. Unfortunately, what he thought God's plan was for him to carry out his own Columbine attack. So he convinced his mother to drive him from their home in North Carolina all the way to Littleton, Colorado, and drive past the high school, and drive past the house of one of the perpetrators, and the pizza shop where the two perpetrators had part-time jobs. And while out there, he bought a black trench coat in imitation of the perpetrators. This is someone who was not just interested in the attack. He was obsessed with it. He idolized the perpetrators, was modeling himself after them. This seems like an obvious warning sign. Why on earth would his mother feed that obsession? It's hard to say. It may have been she thought it'll get it out of his system. He wants to do this so badly. Maybe if I just take him there, he'll let it drop. Maybe that's what she was thinking. Unfortunately, that was not the case. It just fed his fascination, and he ended up committing an attack then on August 30th, 2006. August 30th in particular because it happened to be the birthday of another school shooter. So this is a kid who was just obsessed 
immersed in the world of school shootings. How old was he? 19 at the time. 19. Do you find that school shooters tend to be within a certain age group? You know, in my last book, I look at 48 perpetrators, range in age from 11 to 62. About half of them, 24 of the 48, committed their attacks as middle school or high school students or shortly after high school. Then the other half committed them as undergraduate students, graduate students, adults, a couple professors. So the, the range of school shooters really covers the lifespan. The current book I'm working on is called Warning Signs. It could be classroom behavior, comments the kids make in class, school assignments that have been handed in, that in hindsight, we can see we're foreshadowing violence to come. But usually in that context, it's not explicit. They're not announcing what they're going to do. So you have to read between the lines and kind of know what to look for. And I think a key thing is not for teachers not to try to do that themselves. If they get a homework assignment that really makes their hair stand on end, pay attention to that and communicate with your colleagues. Because if you got an assignment like that from that particular student, maybe other teachers have, and maybe a guidance counselor or school psychologist knows something about that kid. And maybe you put your heads together and start seeing that, hey, there's a pattern here. Maybe we should you know, do an investigation. Did that happen at Columbine? At Columbine, one of the perpetrators had a psychology class. And when they were discussing dream interpretation, he shared with the classes dreams of shooting people. By itself, well, your dreams can be pretty strange for all of us. Maybe you don't make anything of it. But if that teacher had talked to another teacher and found out that same student had written some disturbing things, like certain people don't deserve to live, people should just be killed because they're not worthy of life, and he's made comments like that in class, it's connecting the dots and seeing a pattern there. What teachers are likely to come across is not going to be that explicit so that's why training is so important, that you don't just brush it off as, I guess he's really mad, that's just a fantasy, he would never do it. They give warning signs. The peers may simply be told, don't be in school Friday, I'm coming in with a gun and killing people. Well, that's explicit. Mm -hmm. They need to report that, obviously. In so many cases, we had pieces of the puzzle, we just didn't know what to do with those pieces. Dozens of potential attacks have been thwarted because people did come forward and share their concerns. So that happens more than we'll ever know because if those events don't take place, they tend not to make the media. Sometimes they do if it's a close call and people get arrested and so on, but a lot of these fly under the radar, so we don't even know how many might be thwarted. There were so many warning signs at Columbine. As a parent, I know what my kids are doing. How did our perpetrators' parents not know that they were building bombs in their house. The parents of one of them did find a pipe bomb that he had built. So of course they confiscated it and told him not to build anymore. And he being a very good con artist said, oh no, I, I, I would never do that again and went right on doing it. Where he was doing it, whether it was in the house or how much was somewhere else, I'm not sure. But they did know, and there was another shooter whose parents found explosives in the house. So they put them all in a garbage bag and dragged it out to the curb to be picked up. And when they weren't looking, the kid went out and picked up the bag and brought it all right back to his house. 
Even when kids have been caught with things like farm-making materials, that hasn't stopped them from doing it and getting away with doing it. Mm -hmm. So in cases like that, I think what needs to be done is periodic room checks. And maybe even need to invite the police in to do a search because they know what they're looking for more than most parents do. Maybe they could even bring in a dog to sniff out chemical ingredients. If your kid's building bombs in your own home, you need to do more than just confiscate what you find and say, don't do it again. And I think it's really important as parents to keep up with their social media. Do you think it's possible that we could end school shootings? Ideally, that's what we aspire to. Um, certainly, we can do a whole lot better. There's so much more that we as a nation could be doing. I think we've come a long way in 20 years, but there's a long way still to go. And there's different ways you can approach it as a society, whether it's access to firearms, inadequate mental health services, the stigma against seeking mental health treatment. Obviously, we still have violent dysfunctional families that can be a breeding ground for future violence. So that raises issues with child protective services. Mm -hmm. And also, our schools often do not have threat assessment teams, which consist of people who are trained to evaluate warning signs that are brought to their attention and determine if it's a false alarm or a real threat of violence. For whatever reason, as a nation, we focused on reactive procedures, such as lockdown drills, how to survive an active shooter incident, improving our emergency response, and so on. And all of that's valuable, but all of that's reactive. That's what you do after there's a gunman in the building. The proactive piece is to train schools in threat assessment so when there are warning signs, you can intervene and not end up with that gunman in the building that forces you to go into lockdown. Absolutely. I had one last question for you. Um, I just think it's interesting that you you have so much information available to anyone for free. Why do you do that? Well, it all started when I was doing my own research on Columbine and organized the material so that people could use it as a research tool. I did that for my own research, but then I thought I might as well make that available to other people. So it just became a, a public service to find and collect relevant material so anyone who wants to study this phenomenon has it right there at their fingertips. Amazing. Thank you so much for your work. It's amazing. On the next episode of Confronting Columbine. I kept feeling my phone buzzing. And I finally looked and there was about 10 calls from my teammate. And so I called him back and he said, they said at school a star athlete died. They think it might be suicide. You better get over the house right away. For more information on The Rebels Project or to donate, please go to therebelsproject.org and see me there. Want to know more about the Confronting Podcast? Please follow us at Confronting Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for photos, additional content, and discussions about the podcast. We are all confronting something, and I look forward to continuing the discussion from our episodes over social media with all of you. If you enjoyed this one, please subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Thank you so much for going on this journey with me. Confronting Columbine was produced and hosted by me, Amy Over. Executive produced by Nancy Glass, Andrea Gunning, Ben Fetterman, and Carrie Hartman. Produced by Julie Clark. Associate producer, Trey Morgan. Editing by senior audio editor, Matt Delvecchio. Editor, Drew Wallace and Dean Welsh. With production assistance from Megan Paisley and Brianna Fars. Other members of the production team include Kristen Melchiori, Pete Ward, and Natalie Thomas. Music and original composition by Mibe Music. Confronting Columbine was produced by Glass Entertainment Group, Glass Podcasts in partnership with Wondery. I'm Elena, an autopsy technician. And I'm Ash, a hairstylist. And we just love swapping stories about all of the morbid things that fascinate us. And if you do too, join us on our podcast, Morbid. It's a safe space to let your weirdo flag fly. On Morbid, we cover dark historical events, sinister science, unnerving paranormal events, and sordid high society murders. We also dive deep into the most notorious crimes in history. Our podcast is grounded in rigorous and painstaking research. We're also not afraid to read a p- yeah. <laughs> We keep it weird because a dash of snark is necessary to get through grotesque true tales of demented minds. So follow Morbid on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Morbid early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.